You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! Tamrak Song, founder of the Teaching Drum Outdoor School in northern Wisconsin, joins us again. This time for a new book, Becoming Nature, Learning the Language of Wild Animals and Plants, a Bear and Company 2016 release. Tamrak shares his decades of living in the wild, and at one point in his life, as he shared during another show with us, he lived with a pack of wolves. His new book is a wonderful and practical handbook to opening ourselves to our own nature, to aligning our inner and outer lives with nature, so that we come into rapport with plants, trees, birds, fox, and any other living being we meet, Tamrak teaches any reader of the book, quote, how to hone our imagining skills so that we can transform into the animal we are seeking, along with becoming invisible by entering the silence of nature. Join us for a wonderful journey into nature and explore in the days and years to come when you get his book. Some of the techniques, games, and meditations that Tamrak Song offers us so generously and clearly in his new book, Becoming Nature, Learning the Language of Wild Animals and Plants, a Bear and Company 2016 release. Tamrak, welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Well, hello again, Dr. Zoe. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to be with your guests with your uh, um, audience. One of the things you've done with your book is create 12 steps. I mean, it's a beautiful structure, and I really wanted to start Mm -hmm. there because being an author myself and interviewing so many, how we go about thinking about a book and putting it together is really the first step. Truly. um, When I approach writing a book, it's, I usually don't have an outline. Um, I have a, a collection of ideas. I have a collection of notes, maybe, maybe some essays. Um, and then I, I start accumulating it. I start putting it together like the pieces of a puzzle. Uh, that's the way my mind works. I probably would have been diagnosed with ADHD when, um, when I went to school, um, although the, the concept did not exist then. So um, other people start with a much more methodical process. But, you know, it's the way I learned from my native elders when I, when I apprenticed to them. They did not sit me down and say, okay, we're going to learn this today, and this is the one, two, threes that we're going to go through. I learned mainly from them through example and through stories, and that is the way I approach my writing it's through the examples that of, of the way I learn things and the stories that other people can generate by going and doing these things themselves so that they have their own stories rather than just quoting me or quoting somebody else. Mm-hmm. I like the way you described that your book as a discovery process for yourself. I'm the same way. And I also probably, if, if we had been born at this time, boy, we'd both, they'd be trying to shove Ritalin into us. And <laughs> right. We'd both be kicked out of school together. I mean, I have found so many people outside the box. If any of us were children today, we wouldn't have been allowed to develop the way we were then. Fortunately, we were allowed. I know, it's really tragic. So your book explores many ways um, that you've helped students, and as you mentioned, the elders of many different indigenous um, tribes have taught you. And I I loved, by the way, I just wanted to say it before I forget it, is that um, Temple Grandin, on the back of your book jacket, Mm -hmm. talked about um, 
how appreciative she was of your comment that we have to get away from thought in order to understand animals. So let's start there. Oh, it's a beautiful place to start. I'm glad you picked up on it. Because one one mistake we make right away is that we must approach our relationship with nature intellectually. And, uh, you know, our frontal lobes are very evolved in relation to most of the other animals. And when we approach it, um, uh, nature through our frontal lobes, we are right away distinguish ourselves from nature because we have another mind. We have our deeper mind, which some people call our subconsciousness or um, our limbic process. And this is where actually 95 to 99% of our processing goes on. We're just not aware of it consciously. This is the seed of our ancestral memories and our, our intuitions and our sensory perceptiveness. And this is where our real decisions are made. And we think we make decisions consciously, but actually uh, oftentimes if you can hear yourself or you hear other people, um, they, they seem to be, when they seem to be stuck on something, they're coming up with all these rationalizations to support what they want to do or the way they see something. And they're really not rationalizations. Um, they are um, basically excuses to do what their limbic process is telling them, and they can't just accept it, or other people can't accept it. They will argue against the people. Mm-hmm. And um, they, there's no defense for it. It's, it just is. And this is where we need to go in order to commute, in order to become nature again, in order to truly communicate with animals, not just understand what they're saying, but to know what they're feeling, what they're sensing, what their needs and motivations and passions are. That's what I call communication. It's another level. Mm-hmm. Of being completely in rapport as we would be mm-hmm. with another human if we're sensitive and open and listening. And I thought that it was um, quite right on target when you talked in the beginning of how we all start out with this grand openness and then we kind of get it taught out of us but if we listen to children and we ourselves think back to our own toddlerhood and you know before we started rational learning that all of us pretty much were attuned to speaking with nature so so share with us how culturally what's happened in the western world versus let's say indigenous peoples worldwide there is a vast difference between the way our children are raised and the way their children are raised oh that's a powerful question boy um if some of you listeners remember when you were a child and um, you, your parents or someone else said to you, who are you talking to? Don't talk to those invisible whatevers. You know, you're making things up. Boy, what an imagination you have. Well, from adult perspective, it might be imagination. However, when we're children, we are attuned to other voices. We are attuned to other energies. And we are attuned to the hoop of life and all of that's going on. Relationship isn't just a connection from A to B but relationship is all that's going on and and that affects A and B together. This is where the true communication lies. So what happens when we're children is that our intuitive abilities and our perceptive abilities are squelched and we're forced more and more and more to become passive receptors. We go to school and where does the spontaneity go? You can be spontaneous during recess maybe or after school, but otherwise you sit down when you're supposed to sit down. You get up when you're supposed to get up, and you, in some classes still you have to raise your hand to talk, and the spontaneity is gone. 
So we're forced into our rational minds. Now, Native children and children in indigenous cultures grow up very differently. They are essentially given free reign. There's a children's culture where the children get together and they're exploring, they're discovering, they're, they're creating, they're imitating their parents, they are um, observing the animals, they're imitating the animals. This is how they learn. So they don't lose that spontaneity. They don't lose that ability to listen, to truly listen. I call it deep listening. Mm-hmm. So there's and, a major difference. Well, and I was going to say, as I've gotten older, I've lost a lot of my hearing from broadcasting, and I haven't gotten hearing aids. And I have found a much deeper ability to come into rapport with things because I actually physically don't hear all the noise of everything. It's a, It's been an oh. interesting development in that my um, sort of spirit ears got better as my physical ears got worse. But but you're, you point out that all of our senses are the doorway, and I'd like to like step back to the beginning of your book where you talk about the primary characteristics of nature speak, because I think it's a beautiful summary. Um, First, you say that it's instantaneous. Maybe we can quickly go through these points one by one, because I think it's the broader perspective that your book then breaks down. Sure. Mm -hmm. So the first one you say is, well, first tell us what you regard as nature speak when you use that term. Nature speak is a, is a term I picked up. I don't remember where, actually. Um, but it's, it's, the lang- it's the language of all of nature. Um, it's interspecies. Um, and the plants and animals all speak it. And this is the, the level, the deep level of communication that they all have so that they know what each other are doing. They know when it's safe. They know when it's not stay- safe. And it has nothing to do with language as we know it. It has to do with communication, not mm-hmm. language. Language is just one small aspect of communication. Even with us, who are very civilized, we're still commu- uh, communicating in many ways other than verbal language. We don't always realize that. So when an animal uh, speaks, an animal is actually listening. It's all about listening rather than speaking Mm-hmm. It's, it's the reverse of the way we approach communication. And and you say that it's instantaneous, meaning yes. you don't have to really think about it. You don't have to think about it. In fact, thinking gets in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the first impressions and intuition are are the remnants of what we're still in touch with. Do you know how sometimes you uh, you see something and you have an impression right away? And then your mind gets involved, and sometimes you, you talk yourself out of it, or you see other things, or you have other considerations, or you're too busy to, to give that attention or whatever. Well, that first impression is animal speak. That's what's coming from your, from your limbic process, from your subconscious. And that, by the way, is true in, from interviewing all the different kinds of um, radiesthetic arts, whether it's dowsing or... Mm. anything else like it, it's yes. at a remote viewing, and that when we try to analyze it, we get in the way of the experiencing of it. You also say it's understandable that it doesn't require any translating. Yeah, there's as soon as we start wrapping words around it, we are um, filtering it because we are subjective creatures. There is no objectivity. I don't care what anyone says. I have still to see an example of objectivity. Just the fact that we choose a word um, to describe something is actually labeling it. We're not describing it. We're labeling it. Mm-hmm. 
That's very true. Again, back to um, remote viewing. That's what Ingo Swan always said. The mind wants to identify and name something rather than just see it and experience it. It's it, You say it's universal, it's intuitive, and simultaneous. Yes. Yes. It's all of that. When we then go forward and look at how we get stuck, besides just using our mind or words, you, you talk about the fact that we try to... Um, What's the right word? Understandings. Analyze, I guess, while we're experiencing rather than just experiencing and later reviewing what it is. Yes, yes. Yeah, analysis gets us stuck in the past. As soon as we stop experiencing the now, as soon as we stop being, as soon as we stop becoming the continual unfolding moment, we are analyzing. We're stuck on the past, which means we are shut down to the present, at least to some degree. That, and and of course, yeah, exactly. And our culture is so dependent on fear as a tool mm-hmm. of manipulation that I think most people live in more fear than probably other ancestors have when even their actual environment was more violent and more difficult. That's very true. That's That's an important point. When we are connected with the means and ends of our existence, when we're not passive receptors, when we're not dependent or codependent, but interdependent, even though there is stress and trauma and challenge, we are directly engaged with it. So we have, we have, some, we have some involvement in the process. And it's not that there's not fear, it's that we've embraced our fear. We're not letting it control us. We're not being victimized by it. And it makes such a tremendous difference. Mm-hmm. And, and I also thought your, your um, seizing on this notion of comparisons. You know, today I was outside and with all the dogs and there was a crow and the crow was actually talking about one of the dogs. That was my impression. Mm. But if I had said that to somebody else and they said, well, how do you know that? I could say, I don't know that. That was what I sensed. And there is a difference between affirming knowing and sensing. Yes. So true. So true. Yeah, if we rely upon knowledge, we are limiting ourselves severely in terms of um, our, our sense of presence, our perceptiveness, our ability to become nature, our ability to live interactively, to live an immersion life rather than a reflective life rather than being it being I and you or I and nature. That cannot happen unless we allow ourselves to sense rather than know. Mm-hmm. And and I thought that you talk about um, you know, that to remember that nature is family. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's such a beautiful concept. I was I was confused at first when I when I was young in my early 20s and I was just getting to know a couple of um, a couple of the Ojibwe and Menominee elders in my area and they talk about all their relations and they talk about the the deer people and the and the bear people and the and the and the, the, the raspberry people and they talk about them as people and as their kin and um, I you know, I had a sense of that. I never wrapped words around it, though. But their language is is a language. It's an Earth language, <laughs> and, and, um, and I, you know, I went went to many years of school, and I learned to look at things analytically, even though I had another nature occurring, um, you know, uh, existing simultaneously with that. But it was it was so beautiful that it's intrinsic to their culture, 
you know, these these other other um, forms of life are truly their brothers and sisters because they live in community with these brothers and sisters, and they have direct interactions with them all the time. There's no isolation, and so the kinship is just obvious, and um, the, the the guiding kinship too, the guiding relationship. You know, we who are Christians, um, especially more Orthodox Christians, um, believe in angels, and we have guardian angels, and we think these angels are real. They're real beings with personalities, and we interact with them. And the same with the native people. They have animal guides. The animal guides are their guardian angels. These are real creatures with um, a real sense of being and presence, and they have a very intimate relationship with these creatures. We're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we'll we'll talk about you know what happens when we're tool culture, our phones, our computers, <laughs> our books. That that it's um, ten steps away from the actual engagement that you have been so instrumental in helping so many people who come to your school, the Talking Drum School, outdoor school in um, Wisconsin. That I'd like to talk about how. An individual listening in our audience can actually start stepping into nature wherever they live without, you know, a lot of people think, well, I have to go on a big retreat and I have to make a big commitment and I have to change my whole life. and I have to go become a nature lover and go live in the woods. But that's not the truth. And so it's really about and that's what's so beautiful about your book, Tamarack, Becoming Nature, is that the tools apply to anywhere we are, whether we're in an apartment or suburbia or fortunate like you are um, to be out among the natural settings. We'll be right back. Our guest, Tamrak Song, his newest Inner Traditions, Rather Bear and Company 2016 release, Becoming Nature. Hello, this is Lynn Roberts, co-author with Sandra Ingerman of Speaking with Nature, Awakening to the Deep Wisdom of the Earth. You can find out more about my work, Restoring a Sacred Connection with Nature, at www. LLYNRoberts.com. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Zohara is a true visionary, and I really hope you listen in to her enlightening programs. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. If you're just joining us, Tamrak Song is rejoining us. His newest book, Becoming Nature, Learning the Language of Wild Animals and Plants, a Bear and Company 2016 release. And you can learn more by going to www.tamarack, T-A-M-A-R-A-C-K, org. You can also visit his outdoor talking drum school from that link. So I want to start and then we'll do some of the exercises or you will (laughs) share them with us. I love there are so many wonderful exercises in this book. And I need to say to our listeners, we cannot give you all these exercises tonight. We'll be able to give you a few. But if you really are interested in cultivating your own awareness and your own ability to come into rapport with nature, wherever it is that nature meets you, whether it's down the street or at an national park or at a local park. Um, This book gives you beautiful exercises you can do with your friends, your children, your grandchildren. By the way, I love the Counting Stones one. I think we're going to have to do that one with my family. Um, This book, Becoming Nature, will help you do that. So we, as we have moved further and further into the technological age, now count on everything 
every tool you can little gidget gasmo to do everything for us so we're getting further and further away from our own i guess what ingo swan called biomind superpowers mm. yes we truly are and uh one reason for that is that we have become passive receptors. We don't need our um, abilities anymore, our perceptive abilities, because we are being spoon-fed. Um, it starts in school. It starts before that when uh, we are being read stories. Stories are not very interactive anymore, even when we're young children. And in school, um, we sit. We're given books. We're given lectures in school. Um, and... Uh, media, uh, whether it's radio, television, the internet, um, videos, it doesn't matter. We are, we are sitting, we're passive receptors. So when we go outside, we expect the same thing. We want to go out and we want to, we want, essentially want the animals to perform for us, just mm -hmm. like they do on a video, just like they do in the Nature Channel. And um, it doesn't work that way. And it, it's really sad because some people go out They'll be out for a half a day, and they'll say, oh, all I saw was a couple little birds, a couple little brown birds. I didn't really see any animals. And I can just about assure you that they passed hundreds of animals of all shapes and sizes, and they probably looked right at many of them, but they did not see them. And it's so sad because they're there. Mm -hmm. And um, unless an animal is spooked and runs, um, they usually don't see the animal. And, and that's just seeing the animal. What about so much more that's, that's possible beyond that? What about actually uh, communicating with that animal, interacting with that animal? And it's even possible after a period of time to get close enough to touch the animal if you want to and, and without the animal reacting in fear. Mm -hmm. It's not impossible at all. And, and speaking of equipment that tells us this on YouTube, you see these videos of people doing that. But it's really true. I mean, we might think we know more, but we're feeling less, as you point out. And it's this capacity to feel, to feel our own feelings and to feel what's being felt around us, whether it's a tree or a bird. And you say that birds really give us an opportunity to step into nature, and it's a very good place to begin. So share with us how you go about teaching that. I'd like to. Actually, I'd like to use the example of um, Christine Shiner. She's the um, illustrator of the book, Becoming Nature. Beautiful She lives in downtown Manhattan. And believe it or not, she writes a nature column <laughs> from downtown Manhattan. And uh, she talks about all the animals she sees. Uh, she gets up early, and the raccoons, and there's even the occasional fox she sees, believe it or not, going down the alleys and such. Um, um, there are the raccoons and um, all of the birds, um, possums, um, bees, butterflies. There is nature in, in Manhattan. Um, she, ta she talks about the planters that are out. People put out flower pots and planters, and there are bees and butterflies there, just like out in the woods and in the, in the, um, in the meadows. Um, and she writes stories about the, um, the, the hornets and the caterpillars and, all, and the ants, all the various animals she sees, and the birds, the, the sparrows, the starlings, the robins. She sees cardinals in Manhattan, uh, pigeons, of course. All of them are nature right there. 
and she has learned so much, and she takes people on nature walks in Manhattan, believe it or not, and they're amazed as to what they see. <laughs> they didn't know these things existed. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. You also, yeah. you know, t- talked uh, in the book about um, something that's very clear, particularly when you just get away from the city for a little bit and you can actually see the sky, is that our 24-7 lights on all the time, whether in our households or the streets, has made it so that we have overridden our basic biorhythm or our circadian rhythm. And you you talk about how much that has really affected all of us biologically and what it does to us. Yeah, it's tremendous. We are the most perceptive um, when we first wake up in the morning. Now, we don't always feel that, (laughs) maybe because we got to bed late at night or um, we're waking up at a time that is out of sync with our circadian rhythms, which are our natural rhythms of uh, activity and rest, we are actually biologically designed to get up at the dawn, to be up at first light. And lo and behold, this is when all the animals are up too. They're either up the night, the nocturnal animals are going to bed at that time, and um, they're going to rest for the day. And the diurnal animals, the daytime animals, are getting up at that time. And that's when they're the most active because they're hungry. um, They're going to get a drink. They have uh, young to feed if it's the nesting season or the breeding season. So there's a lot of activity then. And oftentimes when we go out midday, um, we're not at our peak because of our circadian rhythms. It's um, In many cultures, it's siesta time. It's time to take a nap. Which I heard, by the way, they're going to um, get rid of in Spain. I'm thinking, wow, that's going to be a profound change for that country. Oh, boy. That, it's a, a, yeah, it's a cultural landmark, you might say. Yeah. The siesta in Hispanic countries are getting rid of it. That's what I heard. I don't know if it's true. I didn't look it up, but somebody mentioned that recently. Oh, boy. Well, I, I can understand the pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they want to become a part of... Um, you know, the, the productive society. empire. I think that's what they said is it's slowing down production. But you have found, <laughs> and the research doesn't prove that to be so, and nope. that's why I thought what you had to say was so interesting. Yeah, it, it does not slow down production at all. Um, we are more alert, we're more perceptive when we function in alignment with our circadian rhythms, and we see a whole lot more out in nature. It just works that way. And you also pointed out, you know, this the napping, the one-hour nap in the afternoon, which siesta comes from, is really an appropriate way to restore the body and not overcharge the adrenal glands. And I like that you included loud music as the same kind of stimulant as coffee or drugs, because the music in our culture, which I just now call noise, has gotten so loud in every public forum from whether it's a shopping store or um, an event, a sports event, so that you can't even hear the sports. All you hear is this screaming loud music through these loudspeakers. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, Loud noises, and especially continual loud noises, they stimulate the adrenal glands. Um, Just imagine in the environment in which we evolved, a loud noise means something traumatic is happening. So um, the adrenaline is pumped into the system, and we end up in a state of stress. Now, when there's continual loud noise, when there's continual disruption, we are in a continual state of low-level stress, and this wears away at us. It wears away at our perceptiveness, and we start partially shutting down because this is a a stress uh, response so that we do not become traumatized. 
and we tune out a large degree of what's going on around us. It's, it's a pure survival mechanism. And we mm-hmm. suffer for it. Mm-hmm. We really do. Our whole culture does. And yeah. I, I also thought it interesting that you have this um, practice called shadowing and that there's a way to shadow as a method for honing our listening skills. I found this fascinating. In addition to silence, which our culture has a lot of trouble with, but which I really enjoy, um, how do you use shadowing for improving our listening as well as you talk about shadow walking? Yeah, shadowing as a a training tool is literally becoming the shadow of something that is around you. If there is a a tree in front of me that's being blown by the breeze and the tree is swaying back and forth, I will sway with the tree because if the tree is swaying and I'm standing still, I'm sticking out. I'm the odd one here. I'm the one that's not moving within the greater movement. And the animals pick this up. If I'm moving along with the greater movement, if I'm, if I'm the shadow of what is going on around me, um, I blend in. I'm, I'm being interactive with my environment. So the, the, the exercise of shadowing, which can be done anywhere, by the way, um, I just concluded an at-home class where people who live mainly in urban environments are shadowing people as they walk. You know, someone is ahead of me on the sidewalk. I will come in behind that person very surreptitiously, of course. I don't want that person to feel as though he or she is being stalked. But I will step in that person's footsteps, and I will look where that person is looking and move the way that person moves. And pretty soon I start becoming that person. I start feeling what that person is feeling because... Um, I'm, I'm noticing what that person is noticing, and I'm going where that person is going. I feel the intensity. Is that person walking fast or slow? Is the, is the person limping maybe a little bit? Uh, is the person carrying a heavy load? How is the person dressed? I start noticing all these things about the person. And this is akin to the stalk. When a predator stalks a prey animal, the predator is moving very surreptitiously behind that animal and noticing everything about that animal in order to read the animal, to see if the animal is is approachable, to see if the animal is um, um, worth chasing. And there's there's a a relationship that's being built here, an interaction. So when we um, train ourselves this way, rather than just walking from, you know, my car to the the fire store in the mall, and um, all I'm thinking about is what I'm going to do once I get there, I can have an interactive experience. I can create relationship while I am moving. This helps me to be in the now. And I notice so much else because I'm being pulled into the now. I'm connected right here. It's a beautiful exercise, and it's so rewarding, and it can be done anywhere and anytime. Yeah, it it sounds it. I'd like to try that. You also talk about this um, urban attunement training, which, I I mean, there's so many exercises in this book that are so brilliant in terms of awakening some other part in our higher awareness. And one of them, you said, was take a tour of one city by following the map of another city. You also said (laughs) that that is like just so splendid an idea. Follow a random a logarithm, like go north for two blocks and east for one. What do these things help us do in terms of coming into rapport with the way animals think or act? First of all, it, it, it awakens us because if we do not know what's around the next corner, we're not just following a map to get to the, to the um, event or the store we wanted to go to. 
and we miss everything in between, or we followed, we've taken that route so often that we just do it as, you know, just do it subconsciously. We don't think about it anymore. We're not connected anymore. We take so much for granted. When walking in the woods, you cannot do that. No human can do that. No animal can do that because the woods doesn't have any blazed trails such as we always use. It doesn't have any maps to get from point A to point B. You have to find your way. You have to feel your way. You have to be aware, awake, and connected. And this exercise of uh, taking a map of another city and using it in, in your city is beautiful because you have an idea as to what you're doing because you look at the map just as an animal moving through the woods or a human has an idea of where they're going and what they want to do. But that's it. Beyond that, it's all a mystery to be explored and discovered. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great exercise. It's so we much used fun. to do something not like that, but when we would take driving trips, we would take away the map and just go, all right, let's intuitively get off whenever we think we should. And my husband and I did that for years. And actually, that's how we came across the most interesting rock shops wherever we went. Like, you know, we wouldn't look it up. And this was even before the days of the Internet. So there was nothing to look up unless you went to the library and got books or something or the bookstore. And instead, every once in a while, we'd say, "Okay, so for the next four hours, you know, we're just going to get off whenever we think we should. And that was actually what we often found. It was a peculiar phenomena that the intuition kept leading us to these beautiful minerals. Well, good for you. Beautiful. Beautiful. So we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back and practice or teach, if you don't mind, the secret stone game, because I think it's one of these games that everybody in the audience can play with any age group of people, and it improves everybody's intuition with a great deal of joy. Our guest is Tamrak Song, one of my favorite teachers about the outdoor life and being in nature and how to be nature and find our own inner nature. His newest book, Becoming Nature, Learning the Language of Wild Animals and Plants, go to www tamaracksong.org. Hello, this is Russell Four Eagles, medicine man and author of The Making of a Healer. You can learn more about us at www.soaringeagleswellness.com and you are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zoe Hieronymus, a truly light being. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm Zoe Hieronymus. Our guest is Tamrak Song. His book, Becoming Nature, Learning the Language of Wild Animals and Plants. So one of my, I mean, I love games that you can play with any age group of people that improves our intuition, psychic ability, listening, whatever it is. And you have one called the Secret Stone Game. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that to our audience? I can. Um, First of all, before describing it, I'd like to lay down the rules. And these are very different rules for a game. Um, and, and they're very important because the only way to play this game is to use nature speak. There's no other communication in the game. And this is to develop our nature speak ability, actually to, to reconnect with it. It's already there. Um, the three rules are, first of all, that nothing matters. And this is very important because as soon as something matters to us, we're, we're we're attaching to a belief or a, or, a, or a projected outcome, and that gets in the way of the game. And the second rule is don't think. This is what we talked about um, in the program already. 
it's that first impulse. It's that, that intuitive clarity that we're after here. That's all we need. We don't have to do anything beyond that. Just that impression. And the next rule is don't compete because there's no competition here. Actually, um, we need to be interactive because communication is interactive. And if we're competing, we're shutting down the channels of communication. It becomes all about me and my ego. And um, that th the game doesn't work if, if we do that, if we compete. Now, the way the Secret Stone game works, um, I'll just keep it real brief here. I know we only have so much time. But um, the rules are in the book, and, and they're not all that complicated. Uh, but uh, what you do is um, you need two or more players, and you need 11 stones. They can be, uh, and they need to be varied stones, you know, stones with different personalities, different colors and shapes, sizes, it doesn't matter, just so that you have 11 stones. You lay the stones down in a circle on the floor or out in the grass, wherever you're at, and then the people, the people who play, and it can be two or more players, up to whatever's comfortable to sit in a circle, everybody sits around the stones with the stones in, with the stone circle in the center, and then the person who starts the game um, chooses a stone and um, without letting the other players know, just chooses it by, by looking at the stones and seeing which stone speaks to him or her. And, um, and then the next player clock going clockwise will pick a stone that this is a process of elimination. The idea is to pick up all the stones except for the stone that this person has chosen. So the goal here is for the person who chose the stone to let the other players know intuitively which is his or her stone. It's not to keep it secret, but it's to let it be known because this is about communication. Mm -hmm. So each player goes around the circle and eliminates a stone that this person feels, not thinks, but feels is not the, the, the first player's stone. And as soon as a person picks the wrong stone, which is the stone that the person chose, um, the game is over and you start and then um, the next person in the circle chooses a stone. And it's the same sequence again. It's, it's, uh, it's just gone. a wonderful, intuitively strengthening game. And you can, by the way, if you aren't a winner of the book or you not can't afford to buy the book but you have a computer, you can go online to teachingdrum.org forward slash becoming dash nature. That's teachingdrum.org forward slash becoming dash nature because there's other um, opportunities for other games as well that really help I guess, develop our ability to um, communicate, as you point out, not with our words and not with necessarily our thoughts, but our feelings. There are so many beautiful things, and I want to be sure to give you the opportunity um, to choose if we haven't talked on something you think so important. But there was one I just wanted to mention and then let you um, take the rest of our 10 minutes, which is you talked about counting coup. And I have to say, I had forgotten that expression entirely, and then I read, when reading your book, I bumped into Joseph Medicine Crow's book, and it's called Counting Coup. Oh, beautiful. Isn't uh, that interesting? It says yeah. and it's becoming a crow chief on the reservation and beyond. It's a wonderful short autobiographical book, but um, 
counting coup. It's so funny because I walked out today and there's seven deer standing in the woods looking at me and they counted coup on me. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Great. 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 Yeah, counting coup. It's the last section in the last chapter in the book because I didn't want to emphasize it. Um, however, after after we become reattuned, it's a great test. Um, counting coup is essentially getting close enough. If if you're a warrior, you get close enough to your enemy to be able to touch your enemy without being hurt or without hurting your enemy. It's just showing that you have the skill and the ability to be what we're talking about, to be perceptive, to be aware, and without hurting anybody, without hurting anything. And counting coup can be used when becoming nature also. Um, I uh, uh, present counting coup as a way to show that I am attuned. I am able to get close enough to this wild animal to be able to touch the animal if I want. And I usually don't because I don't want to disturb that animal any more than necessary. Mm -hmm. Or there are times when I've been beside a trail and a deer would walk by and I can just let my fingertips brush over the deer's pelt and the deer never knows, just thinks that it's another branch. I'm not disturbing the deer. The deer doesn't know I'm there. So this is what counting coup is all about. And oftentimes I will do it um, even if I'm driving down the road, driving down the highway, and I see an animal, and I will envision stalking up on this animal and being very nonchalant about it, just being a shadow so the animal is not disturbed and, and just exercising through envisioning rather than actually doing it. And uh, and among the natives, when there were wars between tribes or between settlers, count, counting coup and being able to leave some sort of sign that you were there, you would then put, some of them would put a feather in their hair that, you know, to prove how many coups they had actually been responsible for. I just think it's a facet. It reminds me so much of so many other um, esoteric arts where you show up, whether it's in the physical world, the astral world, the causal plane, and whether or not people recognize you or not. And I even remember Ingo Swan talking about when he remote viewed the moon, that there were some beings there that got a sense of his projection being there. They, they, recognized him, although he was trying to count coup, if you will. So uh, I, I just great. think it's it's very interesting. All right. So we have about six minutes, five minutes or so left. What haven't we talked about, Tamarack? Because there's so many other things, including how to paddle in the water quietly, how to walk in the woods, you know, so that, as you mentioned earlier, we don't disturb things, but come into rapport with things. When you wrote Becoming Nature, what what is your hope for the book? Well, my hope is that the book will become obsolete, <laughs> that people will reconnect with what they already are, because the title is actually a misnomer. I wanted to title it Rebecoming Nature, because we already are nature. Nature mm-hmm. is our nature. <laughs> mm-hmm. We cannot separate ourselves from nature. Nature is where we come from and where we're going to return. So what what I want to do is is with this book is to help people to recognize that they already are their perfected beings, that it's not needing to learn new things, it's needing to peel off some of the layers of conditioning that we've picked up. It's like taking your car through a car wash. You know that the, the shiny paint job is already there. It's just covered with dust and dirt and crud from the wintertime, that's mm-hmm. all. It just has to go through the car wash to be taken off. And 
that's the approach of the book. Um, and, and this is very important because this helps people with the, with the exercises and tips and stories uh, that are, I fill the book with. It shows that not people who are uh, struggling to, to connect with nature, but people who are coming from an empowered, awakened place. And that's where I start with people. That's what I attempted to do in the book, to walk them through this process of knowing who they already are and what they are already capable of, rather than having them feel diminished or deficient in some way. And there's so many things in the books. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't really have a big desire to go tracking deer or spot a raccoon and follow its trail. It's just not my thing. But they do have an interest in coming into a deeper sense of their own person. And I found like even the things where you talk about walking the edge between, you know, where two habitats meet between forest and grassland or something like that, that that's also true in our lives, that everything you've talked about here can be applied to just our daily lives with others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so important. that That's a very good point. And that's something that I, I talk about in the introduction. This book is about nature, of course. However, it, it Fundamentally, it's about relationship and it's about communication. And what is our life if it's not communication? This helps to enrich our relationships with our mates, our partners, our children. It helps us to be more efficient and um, uh, interactive at work, um, in our social lives. It just enriches life in general to be able to communicate on this deep, intuitive, fundamental level. You also mentioned something that I think is really important in all our lives, no matter what we're doing, which is how expectations basically blind us. Oh, boy. That's a tough one, because many of us are unfulfilled, and because of that, we have expectations. Um, there, we have needs. We're, we're coming from a needy place. And the best way to fulfill our needs is to forget about them. Because then we can open up to what is around us. We can um, learn to appreciate what is what is given to us that we can't see if we are focused on something. Uh, it just it it it's so important to let go of those expectations, and then things start to appear. And this is so true in our regular lives and out in nature. Um, if we let go of the expectations, um, you know, I want to go out and see a deer, for example. Well, if I'm focused on looking for a deer where I think a deer might be, I might miss the fox, and I'm going to miss the squirrels, and I'm going to miss the eagle who flew over, and all the other things that are going on. So if we can let go of expectations, and actually forgetting about trying to find that deer is going to help us to see the deer. And that's true about everything in our lives. I mean, when I think how many times my expectation of something is what creates the emotional up-down versus just being present to whatever it is that's going to happen, and that's really what you show about becoming nature or re-becoming nature. I like that very much. Thank you so much, Tamrak, for being with us. It was always a pleasure, and um, I look forward to talking to you again. Well, the pleasure's mine. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to being back. Follow up, folks, www.tamracksong.org, also www.teachingdrum.org, Tamrak Song's book, Becoming Nature, Learning the Language of Wild Animals and Plants, a Bear and Company 2016 release. 
21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. And I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. And remember, we do need more love in the world.